Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And all God's people said, Amen. Let us worship the triune God. Bless the Lord who forgives our sins. For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty like you, O Lord? Your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Lift up your hearts. We lift up to the Lord. Gracious Father, in the fullness of time you sent forth your only Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, you did by sending your own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for our sin. And you condemned our sin in his flesh instead of us, so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, in order to redeem us who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons, so that we might receive the spirit of your son and call you our father. And so we worship you now in the name of Jesus, your son, our savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, world without end. And amen. amen. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Many Christians have come to believe that meekness is basically synonymous with apathy, niceness, softness, and generally spineless cowardice. But this is not biblical meekness at all. First of all, Jesus says that the meek shall inherit the earth. This means that meekness wants to inherit the earth. You cannot be meek unless you are biblically ambitious. Jesus is not saying that it is foolish to want to win the whole world. Jesus is telling us how to want to win the whole world and how to actually do it. Jesus himself is the meek one. He died and rose again and inherited the whole world. The ends of the earth have become his possession. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And so he must be our standard for what it means to be meek. He was meek when he ditched his parents as a 12-year-old in order to debate with the scribes in the temple. He was meek when he later called them hypocrites and snakes. He was meek when he overturned tables and cracked a whip. He was meek in agony in the garden and meek when he cried out on the cross that it was finished. The Bible says that Moses was the meekest man on the earth in his days. While Moses was not perfectly meek like the Lord, he was no soft man. He was no coward. He was not generally known for his niceties and pleasantries. He stood before Pharaoh and declared the word of God boldly. And he did so again and again while reducing the Egyptian empire to ruins. He led Israel through the sea and through the wilderness while they complained and plotted against him. And he interceded for them when they deserve to die. So what is meekness? Meekness is the Spirit's grace that allows believers to rule their passions well, to rule their emotions and their feelings in all holiness. 
Meekness is the peace that passes all understanding, the fortress of God's goodness and love surrounding your heart and mind in the fiercest storms of life. But meekness is also pursuing justice without panic, without fear, without emotional roller coasters. Meekness is a glad, steeled resolve, a zeal for righteousness and truth that is grounded in Christ the rock, that cannot be moved, that is not easily offended, that forgives freely and gladly and repays good for evil at every turn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. As we prepare to confess our sins this morning, please turn to O sacred head now wounded, found on page 263. Amen. So as you're able, please kneel as we confess our sins together. Psalm 130 says, out of the depths I've cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Father, we confess that we have not wanted to be meek because we thought it meant being weak and soft and losing. We confess that we have not really believed your word, that the meek will inherit the earth. And so we also confess that we have not been meek. We have not ruled our passions and emotions by your word and spirit. We have been quick to panic when things are not going as we planned. We curse out loud or under our breath or in our thoughts. We churn with worry and fear when the wind and the waves increase in our lives. Even though we know you are right here with us, you are always with us in the boat. We have grasped for things you have not given. We have reacted to what others have said or done rather than acting in wisdom and obedience. We have demanded, we have insisted on our own way, we have complained, we have been angry, even furious. And sometimes in our panic and anxiety, we have been cowardly and weak and fearful, and then we have had the audacity to call it meekness. Father, we are ashamed of these sins. They are evil and foul, and they are not befitting your children, those who claim to be Christians. So, Father, we ask you to forgive us for the sake of Jesus. Let his precious blood cover our sin and shame. Let his obedience and perfection be ours. And we are bold to ask for this and believe that you will do it simply because you have promised to do it if we ask. Father, we also know that if we in the church regard sin in our lives lightly, this prayer will be ineffectual and we will not be salt and light in the world. And so we silently confess our individual sins to you now. Selah. So we ask all this in the strong name of Jesus, and amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Isaiah 35 records these wonderful words, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away.
If you have called on the name of the Lord in all honesty, then you have been ransomed by the Lord. He has paid all your debts and has set you free. And he has put everlasting joy on your head and in your heart and in your mouth. And this is because your sins are forgiven through Christ. The text this morning is from Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. These are the words of God. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this word before us now. I pray that you would open our hearts just as our Bibles are opened. I pray that your spirit would work in us and show us the way of obedience and application. And I pray that, you, that we would be enabled to see that trust, faith, is the way of obedience. And Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the law of God is like math. The law of God is like math. It doesn't care about anybody's feelings. The answer's right or it's wrong, and it doesn't matter um, how that makes you feel. It is straight and hard and cold and altogether righteous. It doesn't bend. When you're doing a math problem, there's one right answer, and there are an infinite number of wrong answers, and that one right answer doesn't care what you feel about all the, how invested you are in the wrong answer that you had spent so much time on. At the same time, when this cold, very cold law is resurrected in the body of Christ back from the darkness of the tomb, it comes to us as burning love. So when this cold law comes back from the grave in the body of Christ, it comes to us and we experience it, we believers experience it as burning love. And that's why I am preaching cold law and hot gospel. This is the way we experience it, cold law and hot gospel. So this passage, <clears throat> this passage from Galatians 2, comes in the context of Paul's rebuke of Peter at Antioch. You remember that Peter was eating with the Gentiles and, and was um, ha having open table fellowship with them until certain men from Jerusalem came, men from James who were, uh, they were get out over their skis. They weren't, they weren't representing James very well, but they were representing a, a, a particular contingent in the Jerusalem church. And that contingent was saying that Gentiles have to become Jews if they want to become Christians. If you want to become a Christian, you can come to Jesus, but you have to come through the Torah. You have to accept circumcision. You have to bind yourself to the entire law, and then you may follow Jesus. Well, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, contrary to that sentiment, but when certain men uh, showed up from Jerusalem, Peter then withdrew from fellowshipping with the Gentiles. And Paul saw that this was a fundamental compromise of the gospel. Some people would look at it and say, well, it was just about seating arrangements at the church potluck, but it wasn't seating arrangements at the church potluck. Paul saw that the gospel itself was at stake because if you introduce that kind of division of first-class Christians and second-class Christians in the body of Christ, you are not recognizing the body of Christ. And if you're not recognizing the body body of Christ, then you're, you're dividing Christ. And if you're dividing Christ, you're denying the gospel. So Paul saw that this was hypocrisy. And so he challenged Peter. He, he confronted Peter to his face. And this is something he says in the course of that 
confrontation. He either said this to Peter or he's summarizing afterward the sentiment that he expressed to Peter. Paul says that we know that a man cannot be justified by the works of the law. A man cannot be justified by the works of the law. If we know that, then it's imperative that we act as though we know it. If we know that man cannot be justified by the law, then it is imperative that we act as though that is true. We must act as though we know what we confess we know. Peter knew that truth but he had started to wobble in his actions concerning it. Peter knew and understood the gospel. He knew and understood the truth. He knew the truth, but he wasn't acting in line with the truth. So we are justified, Paul says, by the faith of Jesus Christ. We are justified by the faith of Jesus Christ and not by our own works. Now, there's a, there is a debate among interpreters as to whether this is referring to the faith of Jesus Christ, that as in his faith, the faith of Jesus, or faith in Jesus Christ, as in our faith in his obedience. Now, I'm not intending to go into that right now, although I believe it's the faith of Jesus Christ. We are justified by his faith, his, his obedience, his belief is what justifies us. And when I'm trusting in Jesus, I'm trusting in his obedience, I'm trusting in his faith. So I am trusting in him. But if you take it the other way, it amounts to the same thing. So if you simply trust in Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus, you're trusting in Jesus. If you have faith in the faith of Jesus, you're trusting in Jesus. It amounts to the same thing. So we are justified by Christ. We are justified by Christ and not by our own labors. We have believed in Jesus so that we might be justified, not by the works of the law, Justification through our own efforts is nothing but a pious pipe dream. Justification through our own doing, our own thinking, our own devising, our own anything is nothing but a pious pipe dream. And there's a, there's a sneaky thing here. Not only are we not justified by our own devising, our own doctrines, our own achievements, we are not justified by our own understanding of justification by faith alone. Right? If you, th you, you, you are justified by Christ, there are people who are kind of muddled on justification by faith alone, but Christ is saving them because Christ is the one who saves. And there are people who could pass the justification by faith alone portion of their theology exam who are trusting in their right answer to that exam. And if they're trusting in their right answer to that exam, they are, there's a discrepancy between what they're saying and what they're actually doing. We are justified when we actually trust Jesus. We are justified when we actually give ourselves to him, surrender to him completely. We are not justified when we say the right words. Right? We're not justified when we say the right words. Remember the parable that Jesus told of the rich man, uh, not the rich, excuse me, the, the Pharisee and the publican who went down to the temple to pray. And the publican said, Lord, be merciful to me. I'm a wretched sinner. I'm a mess. So he goes down to the temple and he says, I'm just a mess. Be merciful. And the other says, I thank thee, Lord, that I'm not like other men. Now, what the, what the Pharisee is saying there is doctrinally accurate. It's one of the five solas of the Reformation. Soli Deo Gloria. I thank thee, God, that I'm not like these other schmucks, right? So I'm not, I tithe, I, I fast twice, twice a week, I do all this good stuff. And Jesus says, this man who said all of these true things, 
he did all the, the right things, and he thanked God that he had done all the right things. And Jesus says he went home unjustified. He went home unjustified because he was saying the right words and he was trusting in his mouthing of the right words. You have to, your, your life, your heart has to match the words. When you say, be merciful to me, a sinner, you can't say, oh, you better, I better ape the publican and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a, a, a sinner. Well, if you say that, if your lips approach God, but your heart is far from him, it doesn't do any good. It's, it's the heart that trusts in Christ it, and, the, and the mouth and the heart. Everything has to line up. It's got to be genuine trust in Christ. Now, I've said that the law is, the law is cold, hard, rigid, unyielding. But we have to understand that there are different applications of the law. God is one, and this means that his word is unified. God is one, so his word is one. But his unified word can have multiple applications. One word can be applied in different ways. His law is one, but there are at least three crucial applications. And in Reformed theology, we are accustomed to speak of the threefold use of the law. There, there's a threefold use of the law. There's only one law, but the law can be applied. The law can be plugged in. The law, the law can be uh, uh, projected onto or applied to different situations. The threefold use of the law. The first use is one that I think most evangelicals are very familiar with. The first use of the law is to make us aware of our need for salvation. Romans 3.20, Romans 4.15, Romans 5.13, 7, 7 through 11, Galatians 3.19 through 24. In this application, the law is impossible to keep. The first use of the law puts a spotlight on our inability. We can't be good. We must be good and we can't be good. The law tells us we must be good. And when the law puts a spotlight on how we're actually doing and telling us that we must be good, it highlights the fact that we're nowhere close to being good. And so this is what this, this uh, first use of the law is what's happening when the rich young ruler uh, comes, to, uh, comes to Jesus and says, what good thing must I do, right? What, what thing must I, how, how much harder must I pedal in order to get to heaven? How much harder must I strive in order to get to heaven? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus applied, gives, a, gives him the first use of the law. He says, well, you've read the commandments. Do, keep the commandments. Keep the Ten Commandments. Do everything we just heard sung to us this morning. Do all that. You'll be fine. Be totally great. And the rich young ruler said, but I've done all this from my youth. And they've had this exchange and they itemized several of the commandments. It's interesting that in the exchange between the rich young ruler and Christ, the 10th commandment was not mentioned, right? The 10th commandment, the prohibition of covetousness, the one heart attitude commandment is not mentioned. And, and the rich young ruler says, well, I still, uh, you know, I still am, I'm missing something. I've, I've kept all these commandments from my youth, but I'm still missing something. And Jesus says, oh, I, I've got it. Give all your stuff away and, uh, to the poor and come follow me, which is a requirement that nails him on the 10th commandment. And he went away sad because he had much, many possessions. He went away sad. Now, uh, I, I happen to believe this is uh, not something that I don't think, any, I don't think anybody should go to the stake um, for this, but I think that that rich young ruler was John Mark himself, right? So in the gospels, this, this account is given. And in the gospel of Mark alone, it says, Jesus looked on him and loved him. 
Jesus looked on him and loved him and gave him the first use of the law. Go do this. Go do this. So I'm, uh, I've, I've been carrying these bricks around my whole life, and I'm doing a pretty good job, but I would still like to know how to attain eternal life. So Jesus opens up his backpack and drops a couple of anvils in it. That's the first use of the law. The first use of the law makes us aware that we cannot be good enough. We cannot come anywhere close to being good enough. That's the first use of the law. The second use of the law I'm just going to touch on it's for the maintenance of civil order. The, the second use of the law has to do with maintaining moral order in group situations. The magistrate can use the guidance of the law as he fulfills his duty of restraining evil. The magistrate points to the law and he says, no, you can't murder. No, you can't steal bicycles. No, you can't do these things. He, it's the magistrate's job just to make it safe for us to walk across town. And the second use of the law is that use of the law. You're not trying to get anybody into heaven. You're just trying to maintain public order. You're just maintaining public order. And that's why in, um, in 1 Timothy 1.9, it says the law is for the lawless. The law is for the outlaws. The law is for the bad guys. So the bad guys are restrained by the law. That's the second use of the law. The third use of the law helps the regenerate understand what love looks like. What does love look like in particular situations? And in this sense, the law is a guide for us in our sanctification. The law is a guide for us in our sanctification. So if you look at Romans uh, 13, in Romans 13, uh, 8 through 10, it says this. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. So this is guidelines on what love looks like. This is guidelines on... Uh, how, how, does, how do we put feet on our love for one another? For this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. This is talking to Christians. This is talking to people who have already gone through the experience the rich young ruler went through. They've already repented. They've already abandoned every hope of saving themselves. They've thrown themselves on the mercy of God, and they've been forgiven for all their sins, past, present, and future. You are justified. You are clean. You are right before God. And you've still got 20 years to live on this planet, and you've got other people that you have to interact with. Now, because you've got 20 years or 30 years or 50, whatever it is, you have to deal with other people, and you need to know what love looks like, right? And love is defined by the law. Love is, uh, uh, the definition of love is filled out by the law. So to take a simple example, you borrow your neighbor's lawnmower, you're mowing, you're mowing your lawn, and it blows up. All right, it, while you're mowing, and you don't think you did it, it wasn't, you just had, were mowing for 10 minutes, and it blows up. What does love look like? Well, if you rented the lawnmower from your neighbor, you say, sorry about that, here's your lawnmower back. If you didn't rent it, you just borrowed it, and it blows up, you give your neighbor a lawnmower. Right, that's, or you try to. If he's, if he's letting love be defined by the law, he's going to be pursuing it another way. Two Christians going through the door, right? You first. No, you first. No, no you first. Nobody ever goes through the door. 
But you know, you know that what, because the law of God says, basically, if you borrow your neighbor's mule and, and the animal dies while you're using it, then you restore the mule to your neighbor. That love is defined by the law. So that's the third use. The third use is for the regenerate. The first use is for the unregenerate to make them aware of their need for salvation. The second has to do with civil order. And the third has to do with your sanctification, your walk with God. Now, you can see, I, I hope you can see, how individuals who are jealous for the purity of the first use of the law would be suspicious of those who make much of the third use. All right, if Christians are talking about, oh, well, we ought, we ought to do this for our neighbor because, because Deuteronomy says, and some Christians who are zealous for evangelism are going to say, what are you quoting Deuteronomy for? People are going to think if, if you urge them to love and good works, they're going to think that they're earning their salvation by love and good works. No, no, of course not. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. So we are not saved by our good works before, during, or after any of this, but Ephesians 2.10, the very next verse says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared beforehand for us to do. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved to good works. We're not saved by our good works, but we are saved to them. We're not saved by the law in the first use of the law, but we are saved to the third use of the law. And this is just another way of saying that Christians are freed up by their justification, by their salvation, by their conversion. They are freed up to love one another. And love has boundaries. Love has definition. Love is not a shapeless, inchoate mass. So what do we do when, when you're talking... Uh, with other believers and someone says, well, I believe in a law gospel hermeneutic, or I, be I believe that we should have an understanding that some parts of the Bible are law and some parts of the Bible are grace. There are some believers who do want to think in terms of a law gospel hermeneutic, and I think that this leads us up a, a blind alley. I think we're going to find ourselves entangled in a host of confusions if we do this. Hermeneutic is a big word. Um, like delicatessen, right? <laughs> Big words shouldn't be scary, right? A hermeneutic, a hermeneutic simply tells you, uh, it, it describes your pattern of interpreting a text. So what is your hermeneutic? How do, you, how do you interpret the text? Do you interpret it in a historical, grammatical way? Do you interpre interpret the text in an allegorical way? How do you interpret it? That, that's what hermeneutic refers to. Now, when some Christians refer to a law gospel hermeneutic, what they're, what they're saying is that I think that certain passages are just law and other passages are just grace. So the word hermeneutic has to do with how we interpret a text, like the scriptures. And so what this means is that they want some passages in the Bible to be law, pure and simple, condemning us in our sin, and other passages to be gospel, offering us a gracious way out of our bondage to sin. But this won't do. We couldn't really color code a special edition of the Bible. You, uh, you've seen different study Bibles with color codes for different, you know, prophecy texts or whatever. Uh, we couldn't color code a special edition of the Bible in law gospel categories because a bunch of passages, and I would submit that all of them, are doing double duty. All of them can be one thing or another depending on what circumstance you're in. What is more law-like than the Ten Commandments? What is more law-like than the Ten Commandments? 
and how the Ten Commandments begin. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So what color is that? Right, is that grace? I brought you out of the land of bondage. I brought, I brought you out of bondage. I destroyed Pharaoh and his armies. I split the sea for you. I had millions of you march through the sea. I delivered you. I saved you. And then I started raining bread out of the sky on you. Right? I delivered you from Egypt. Is that law? No. That's grace. Grace, grace, more grace. And it's in the preamble to the Ten Commandments. That's that what's so what color if I had blue for law and red for grace, what color is that? I can't I can't color it one way or the other. And but it gets more complicated. Here's an odd statement about the law from the Old Testament. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So what color is that? This law passage is a grace passage. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And what is more gracious? What is more gracious than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? What is more gracious than a proclamation of the death of Jesus on the cross for the sins of the world? What's more gracious than that? And what does Paul say about it in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16? He says, now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one we are the savor of death unto death and to the other the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? So you come to someone who is not elect, you come to someone who's reprobate, you come to someone who hates God, hates the way of righteousness, they, hate the, they, they, they don't just hate the Ten Commandments, they hate the gospel, they hate the cross. You bring the message of the cross, which is grace, right? It's pure grace. You bring that message to them, and it is the aroma of death unto death. One layer of death and then another layer of death. And what I just quote, what I just declared to them is gospel, salvation, the, off, the, free, the free offer of the gospel. I've offered them forgiveness, and it's death. So what color is that passage? You can't color code the, you know, you, you can't color code the Bible and break it out neatly into law passages and grace passages. So what's going on? What is going on here? This tells us, I, I believe there is a fundamental law-gospel divide. There is a fundamental law-gospel division. But this tells us that the law-gospel divide is not to be found in the text of Scripture. It is found in the difference between one kind of human heart and another kind of human heart. It's found between the, the regenerate and the unregenerate. For the regenerate, everything from God is sweeter than the honeycomb. If, if someone's born again, if the Spirit of God has moved in your heart, if the Spirit of God has quickened you, if the Spirit of God has brought you to life, then absolutely everything your loving Father says and does is precious to you. It's grace. It's undeserved grace. Oh boy, you look at the laws. Oh boy, he's, now he's telling me how I should live. Oh boy, now he's telling me how I, should, I can love him more adequately. Now he's telling me how I can love my neighbor. And look at this, more information. Oh good, law, yay. <laughs> right? And, but who, who does that? A regenerate heart does that. And then 
You come to an unregenerate heart and says, let me tell you how you can be liberated from your bondage to self. And the unregenerate heart says, but I don't want to be liberated from bondage to self. I love me. I love me first. And he's going to keep saying that unless God reaches into his heart and takes away his heart of stone and gives him a heart of flesh. And then he will say thank you. Right? God has to do the initial regeneration. We don't, we don't operate, we don't twiddle any knobs, we don't operate any levers to get God to regenerate us. When we are, when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, as it says in Ephesians 2, when we are slaves to sin, as it says in Romans chapter 6, we are stuck there unless God unilaterally on his own speaks the word and we are quickened. Right, so when Jesus, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the, the dead, that resurrection was not a cooperative effort. Jesus wasn't pulling and Lazarus pushing. Lazarus didn't contribute anything whatever to the resuscitation of Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. He didn't do anything. And Jesus spoke the word and Lazarus came to life, and then Lazarus did something. Then he came out of the tomb. He came out of the tomb just as Jesus wanted him to do, just as you love your neighbor after you're, after you're born again, you love your neighbor, and after you're born again, you want to know how to love your neighbor better, and so you're hungry for God's word. But before that, you're going to hate all of it. You're going to hate the command to rise up and be forgiven. You're going to hate all of it until you're actually in possession of a new life, a new heart. So... For the regenerate, everything from God is sweeter than the honeycomb. All of it is grace. For the unregenerate, the whole thing is the stench of death. Everything is the stench of death, including the good news of Christ on the cross. Including the good news of Christ on the cross. All of it is law and condemnation. Now, when we are held up against the law of God, when we are held up against the law of God and measured by it, the measurement is always constant. It does not show partiality, and it does not adjust anything on the basis of how we feel. The law is a constant, and this is what I began with. The law is like math. It doesn't care how you feel. It is true that sinners are a tangled mess of spiritual bruises, but that is simply a symptom of the problem. It is not the problem. The problem is not how you feel about your sins. The problem is how God feels about your sins. Right, do, you, do you see that? The issue is not, I'm sad, you know, I can't break this bad habit of mine, and it makes me sad. That's not, that's not what you're saved from. That's a symptom of what you need to be saved from. You're, what you need to be saved from is the, is the fact that God is looking at you in your sin, and God is unhappy with your sin. See, that's the problem. It's not, I'm, I'm unhappy with this recurring problem of envy, or I'm unhappy with this recurring problem of lust, or I'm unhappy with this recurring uh, problem of undue ambition. Yeah, it's good that you're unhappy with it, but that's not the problem. The problem is that God hates your envy. God hates your lust. God hates what you're doing. See, and the wrath of God is what we need to be saved from. And the Bible teaches us that when we are when we are saved, we are saved by God from what? We're saved by God from God. We're saved by the Father from the Father. The thing we're saved from is the wrath of God. We're not saved from our own feelings of inadequacy. Right? You're, not, you're, you're not saved from your, the plaguey sense of your own felt needs. It's true that sinners are a tangled mess of spiritual bruisers, bruises, but that's simply a symptom. 
It's not the problem. The objective problem is objective wrath. And this is why the gospel as it is being proclaimed to our generation is uh, so frequently falling to the floor. It's not, people are not pierced to the heart. In the Bible, when the gospel is proclaimed, it says, and they were convicted and they were pierced to the heart. And, and we don't really have the, uh, the ceremony, the ritual that is, occurs in many evangelical churches of having an invitation where people come forward. In the Bible, there are, pre there are occasions where the, the, the gospel is preached and people come forward, but the people coming forward usually have rocks in their hands and they're gnashing their teeth. And, you know, Stephen is done preaching and they rush upon him. They're, they're coming forward, but it's not, it's not what we do. What, ha what happens is the gospel penetrates. The gospel, is, uh, the gospel reveals that our fundamental problem is our relationship to God. It's not what we think of God, it's what God thinks of us and why. And the only, the only way that God can think of us in a pleasant, kind, wholesome, wonderful way is when he's thinking of us in Christ. If he is thinking of us, if he's viewing us in Christ, then we can be received. Welcome. We're welcome in the beloved. We're welcome in Christ, but no other way. So when we stand before the tribunal of God's law, our trial there is deliberate. Our trial in the presence of God is deliberate. It is careful. It is meticulous. It is clinical. And it's altogether just. When a sinner stands before God and heaven and earth have fled away, everything vanishes and the naked sinner is standing before God with nothing in his mouth but excuses that won't work. When that moment comes, you're not dealing with a moment of anger because the trial is calm. The trial is judicious. The evaluation is judicious. This is what I mean when I refer to cold law. This is cold law. It's just simply the facts. Let's roll out the facts. Let's state the facts. The sentence, however, is not cold and clinical. The trial is cold and clinical, but the sentence is not. Nahum 1.6 says this, who can stand before his indignation and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and the rocks are thrown down by him. That's what the sentence is like. John 3, 36, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, but he that, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Notice that the wrath of God doesn't come to him. It says the wrath of God remains. So it's not like you've got a bunch of neutral people lined up and some believe in Jesus and some don't believe in Jesus. And the people that believe in Jesus have salvation come and the people who don't believe in Jesus have wrath come. No, it's everybody is under the wrath already. Everybody is under condemnation already. All of us are in Adam. We are a rebellious world. We are a rebe rebellious planet. We are a, re a rebellious nation. We are a rebellious generation. And all of us are entailed in this. This is what we are by nature. Paul says, we together with the unbelievers were by nature objects of wrath. This is what we are. And if you believe in Jesus, if God gives you the grace to believe in him, then you are extricated from that. You're taken from that condition of wrath. If you don't, then the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God abides on him, as it says in John 3, 36. 
And this is just where the gospel comes in. Our evaluation by the law of God is deliberate and judicious. When the law evaluates us, that is deliberate, cold, clinical, analytical, it's just as judicious as it gets. It is also terrifying because at the end of the process, the sentence is a fireball. The sentence is a fireball. The trial is a place where every mouth is stopped. No one has anything to say. Everybody has, this is, this is an overwhelming case against me. I was presented with many, multiple opportunities to believe in Jesus, and I didn't want to. I hid from him every way I could. Sometimes I hid behind a hymnal. Sometimes I hid in church. Sometimes I hid in bars. Sometimes I hid in multiple relations. I hid in every kind of sin. I was running from God. And at that moment in the, in the trial, when heaven and earth have fled away, you have nothing to say because, because it will be plain and evident that that is precisely what you were doing. You were running from God and did not want him to have anything to do with you. But the sentence is a fireball, and yet there is no grounds for complaint. Every mouth will be stopped before him. And here is where the wisdom of God overwhelms all the pretended wisdom of man. The reason there can be a hot gospel is because in the cross of Christ, the hot wrath of God was poured out upon Christ. So it's not, it's not that you have non-believers who experience the fireball and Christians who, who go scot-free. That's not, that's not the way it works. It's not like non-Christians have to die for their sins and Christians don't have to die for their sins. No, God is holy, God is righteous, and every sinner must die. What God has done in the gospel is he's given us an opportunity to die in a particular place in Christ where resurrection is possible. You either die in a place where there's no resurrection or you die in a place where there is resurrection and Christ is the place where there's resurrection. It's death in both places. It's death for sin in both places. That's what it means when, Jesus, when it says Christ died for our sins. It's not Christ did not die over there so that you might live over there. Christ died so that you might die. He was buried so that you might be buried. He was raised from the dead so that you might be raised from the dead. And he ascended into the heavenly places so that you might go there with him and in him. And this is why in our worship service today, this is why we are in the heavenly places in Christ. If you look at a book like the book of Ephesians, the saints there are in two places. They're in Ephesus. He writes to the saints in Ephesus. And then he tells them, them repeatedly throughout the whole book, they are in Christ, in the beloved, in him, in Christ. They are in the heavenly realms. You are in Ephesus, you're in the heavenly realms. You are in Moscow, and you're in the heavenly realms. You're, you are seated, sit, seated in a folding chair, and you are seated in Christ at the right hand of God the Father, where there's an endless torrent of pleasure forevermore. So the reason there can be a hot gospel is because in the cross of Christ, the hot wrath of God was poured out upon Christ, and he took all of it in. He took all of it upon himself. The word propitiation refers to the fist of the father striking the son so that you might be struck down in him and raised again to life in him. That is the gospel. So if you are looking to the cross, if you look to Jesus, you are looking to him so that you might be identified with him. And when you are identified with him on the cross, what you see there is the fist of the father. 
the fist of the father strikes the son and he, and, and he strikes down and crucifies and deal, deals with every sin you've ever committed and every sin you've ever thought about committing, every sin you're going to commit, all of it was gathered to Jesus and God struck it down in his holy fury. That's what God did. And then the next thing you see is the hand of that same father raising you to life again. That's death, burial, and resurrection, and that's gospel. That's not, that's not an, a cheap grace. That's not easy believism. That's, this is not something where you say, oh, Jesus died 2,000 years ago, and that has some mysterious connection, and, and if I'm vaguely sorry for being kind of a jerk sometimes, that's not repentance. That's not faith. What you have to do is close with Christ. You have to close with Christ on the cross. You have to close with Christ in the tomb, close with Christ in the resurrection, and close Close with the Christ who is raised to the right hand of the Father. The word propitiation means absorbing or diverting or turning aside wrath. He is the propitiation for our sins, John says, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The death of Jesus was a, the point where the fury of God was focused in a laser-like way. Imagine all the, all the flames of a fiery hell concentrated in a laser and landing in one place on one person and dealing with all of it, dealing with all sin, dealing with it in, in a once-for-all kind of way. And so he is the propiti propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We can't be saved by trying to be better. We can't be saved by trying to be a good little Christian girl, good little Christian boy, good Christian man, good Christian woman, because we're not, right? We're not good. We, no one is good but God alone. And if we want to be good, if we're hung, if blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, well, where's the well? Where's the food? Turn to Christ. If you, if you want anything to be put right, in your life, you have to look to Christ, and you have to look to Christ in a way that wants to close with him. You, you cannot look to Christ as an, oh yeah, he's a historical figure. You want to look to Christ with faith, in faith. And when you look to Christ believing, he receives you. No one in the history of the world has ever come to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, looking to him, trusting in him alone, and been turned away. Not one person has ever been turned away. And it doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how much light you sinned against. It doesn't matter how many times your friends tried to warn you. None of that matters. Are, 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 have you committed adultery? In Christ, God doesn't care. Are you a thief? In Christ, God doesn't care. He, he caused the blood of his, his own son to be shed so that he might not care about things like that and remain holy. Do you see that? God wanted, it says in Romans that God wanted to be just and the one who justifies. He wanted to be just and the one who justifies. The cross is what enables him to not care about your sin and remain just. Because Christ died and because you died in him and are raised to life in him, God can look at you as though you had never done anything wrong in your life. And that's what you mean when you say in Jesus' name, amen. That's, that's how you're praying. That's what you're lifting up to him. God, I can't even thank you for the pancakes if Jesus had not died for me. And in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for the pancakes. Thank you for breakfast. Thank you for the, in Jesus' name, amen. Because outside of that, it's the fireball. 
It's either in Christ or outside. It's either the utter outer darkness or it's pleasures forevermore. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. That's cold law and hot gospel. Our Father in God, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for this gospel. We thank you for what you did in and through your Son, our Lord Jesus. This table is the table of the Lord Jesus. And when you hear the name Lord Jesus, you really ought to think of a judge. Paul says that God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has ordained, and he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. The fact that we refer to Jesus as the Lord Jesus, or the Lord, also refers to this fact. He is the master of everyone. This world belongs to him. All things must answer to him. And we call this the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. This is not our table, it belongs to him. When you come here, you're coming to him. And so, this is a table of judgment. Paul says, specifically referring to this table, that we are judged here and chastened by the Lord. But then he says something striking. He says that we are judged and chastened here by the Lord so that we may not be condemned with the world. 1 Corinthians 11:32. And so the fact that Jesus is the great judge and we draw near to him here in this worship service and at this table is really good news. He judges us here so that we will not be condemned with the world. In other words, you ought to think of Jesus the judge like the judges of the Old Testament. How did Othniel and Ehud and Gideon and Samson and Shamgar judge old Israel? They judged Israel in the first instance by delivering them by saving them, by redeeming them, by fighting and destroying their enemies. The name of Jesus, of course, means Savior because he came to save us from our sins. So this is the gospel invitation, and it's the invitation to this table. Are you a sinner in need of forgiveness? Then come. This table is for sinners who need forgiveness. Have you been enslaved to sin? Then come. Jesus was bound and nailed to the cross so that you might go free. Have you tried to hide your sin from God? Jesus sees it all. He knows everything. And he invites you here anyway to lay it down, to let it go, so that you might not be condemned with the world. And so, if you are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, you do not belong to yourself. You belong to him because he purchased you with his precious blood. And so you are invited, sovereignly summonsed. Come, welcome to Jesus Christ. You've heard the cold law and the hot gospel, and in many ways you could sum it all up in just the proclamation, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty, not guilty. And so the charge is, go live that out. Love your wife, love your husband, love your children, love your coworkers, love your neighbors, obey God. Why? Not guilty, not guilty. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. And amen. amen.